Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Lucy Whiteman, the Director of Public Health at Essex, and it's a fantastic exploration of the role of public health in today's public services and how, far from being a specialist niche service area, it should be front of mind for every public servant. This is the second episode in succession with a public health focus following the conversation with Kate Ardern. This is very deliberate. At this critical juncture for the government's levelling up agenda, I want to highlight the key role public health must play in supporting individuals, communities and local economies. Lucy and I talk about the complexity of her role in Essex, where she sits at a county level but engages with three integrated care systems and 12 district councils. How does this work in practice? How does she influence the key people she needs to? We discuss all of that. We also talk about the current set of health and care reforms and what the key elements are for a county like Essex and more broadly. Lucy has a particular interest in health inequalities and why, despite some powerful works of research from Michael Marmot and others, this isn't trending in the right direction. The question of devolved powers is key here. And finally, government can't and shouldn't be responsible for all aspects of public health. So we discuss the role of business, and civil society in ensuring that communities are as healthy, happy and productive as they can be. So let's hear from Lucy. Lucy, many thanks for joining me today. Um, I wonder for the benefit of listeners, if you could just say a little bit about who you are. Yeah, hi. So I'm Lucy Whiteman. I'm Director of Wellbeing, Public Health and Communities at Essex County Council. I've had a public health career, um, been Director of Public Health in different authorities, including throughout the pandemic and through local government reform, but also started my career as a nurse. So have a clinical career prior to that, primarily in the community. Great. And before Essex, what other areas did you work in? 
So I did my public health training across the East Midlands. So worked in Leicester City, Leicestershire, Milton Keynes, in fact, at one point, and then settled as a consultant in Northamptonshire and then went on to become director of public health in Northamptonshire County Council, which subsequently was unitarised. So then at one point was joint director of public health across the two new unitary councils of North Northamptonshire and West Northamptonshire. I also, at that point, for about two and a half years, held the role of Director of Population Health Strategy at the CCG, which was sort of co-terminus with the old county council. So it was, it was a really good collaborative role and obviously allowed me to bring together the primary sort of prevention, business intelligence and sort of strategic planning around health benefits and health outcomes for the county. Yeah. And you were saying that your background is is as a nurse, or at least that towards the the beginning of your career directors of public health who i've met have a real varied background um do you think i mean you obviously have a have a clinical background but there is quite a variety for people who maybe aren't familiar with the role yeah i mean that's the joy of public health it's it's such a broad church from a point of view of the the sort of role and content of, of what we do both as consultants and as directors of public health and it is the one medical specialty that allows non-medics to go on to the training. So there's two main routes into being a consultant in public health. One is undertaking the five-year medical training programme, and you apply through the same route as medics do and undertake a five-year programme, which includes a master's in public health, completion of a sort of significant number of, of portfolio elements and two uh, exams, uh, one very much like an OSPI that, um, you know, general, general practitioners would do, for example, so very situationally based. The other is a kind of a horrendous two day uh, sort of theory and practice test uh, composed of sort of four main component elements or exams. Um, it, it is a beast of an exam, but it really does put you to the test from point of view of the, the theory that underpins public health. Um, yeah. The other route is via a portfolio. So quite a lot of people who have worked at a senior level will complete a portfolio that demonstrates a similar level of experience to that of that you would in, obviously usually engage in during the training programme. Well, I, I think certainly anybody out there who didn't know about the role or appreciate mm. its importance after the past couple of years certainly certainly would have. Um, so I want to ask you about your current role in, in Essex. It's very complex for no other reason than it covers three integrated care systems, I think 12 district councils and one or two unitaries as well. I mean, how on, how on earth does that work in practice? Um, sometimes it works really, really well. We're building really good relationships. I have a team that has sort of geographic based leadership roles so that we've got each of the integrated care boards or, or partnerships has a senior public health lead that attends on a regular basis to build that relationship. I also have senior leads who are aligned with the alliances or the care partnerships, whatever each geography has chosen to, to call them, so that we're better integrated with the primary care and the direct delivery. We also have some of my more junior staff aligned with each of the boroughs and districts, but you, as you can say, it's, it is very complex. We are obviously there to represent the best interests of our population, but we still work for one political organisation. So making sure that the narrative is aligned across those three very different geographies with very different sort of structures and 
leadership styles can be quite challenging. We try to make sure that internally communication is obviously at the forefront of making sure that our plans are aligned and that we're aware of what's being discussed in each of those spaces. But we are one of the most complex systems um, and we are, you know, at this point in time as well, looking at devolutions so that will add potentially a combined authority on top of all of that as well. So I'm going to come back and ask you about devolution later on, but just for those listening, you mentioned partnerships and and alliances. Those are the provider groups that provide health and care services within each of the ICSs, isn't that right? Yeah, so geographically based and really pulling together, as you quite rightly said, all of the provider elements of the, you know, whatever services are needed for that particular area. So this obviously fills that gap that, in my view, was created when CCGs were abolished because they were primary care led. You had a GP chair in those. Primary care had a really strong voice. We've got all of these integrated care boards having delegated authority thrust upon them in the next sort of month um, around commissioning of all other primary care services, including dentistry, optometry, etc. So those alliances, those place based MDT sort of leadership groups that are going to articulate the need locally and develop a right sort of outcomes based approach to, to meet those needs are going to be really, really key. I think the immaturity of the integrated care systems at the moment um, means that people are a little risk averse to delegating formal responsibilities or funding down yet. But I think that's a longer term intention for most areas. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, so I just want to ask you a little bit more about how things are organised in Essex, because it is, I would say, one of the more complex in terms of the number of organisations in, involved in terms of you have the county, you have the districts, you have some unitaries which are very closely aligned as well, and then you have the three ICSs. And I, I wanted to ask you a bit more about how you manage those relationships and I know that you've already said that some of your for instance more junior members of the team are aligned with the different districts but I'd love to hear a bit more about that because I know that whilst other parts of the country might not be quite so complex I know other parts of the country are struggling trying to keep everybody aligned and everyone everyone rowing in the same direction. Yeah I think the first thing I'd say is that I know we haven't got it right yet I'll be really honest about that so I arrived in Essex just as the pandemic was sort of drawing to, you know, a, a close of the sort of last significant wave. You know, it's not gone clearly, but certainly that the flurry of activity was slowing. And, you know, clearly a lot of the practices and relationships had, had you know, actually been enhanced and grown through the pandemic, particularly with boroughs and districts, because from a public health perspective, environmental health officers sit there. You've got a lot of the community networks that are either commissioned or aligned very closely at a lower geographic level. So where we were sort of mobilising community champions to help deliver vaccinations or, you know, pound the streets to give people information, those relationships you know, were really well developed. I think that the challenge with everything post pandemic is that we're automatically slipping into our sort of old routines and actually some of those, you know, regular meetings that we had with that shared vision and purpose have obviously started to abate. So trying to make sure that we've got, as I said, a, a member of staff who may not be you know, the font of all knowledge, but certainly is a friendly face and a representative of Essex County Council's public health team that can 
either answer questions at the local health and wellbeing board or in local planning meetings, wherever they've invited to provide input. Or if they don't know the answer, bring it back and work with the wider team to provide that insight. That's the model that we're trying to build. But it, it will require continued effort. What I would say is that it's been really well received, that there's been a sort of a dedicated lead contact person from ECC within each district and borough. And they're also working with a practitioner that we part fund, who's been a kind of a long-standing member of staff within each of those boroughs and districts as well. Um, again, we're trying to make sure that their communication is more aligned and that they're clear about how the borough and district can help develop and deliver the wider Essex County Council public health objectives. I see. And from your perspective, are there advantages to having the county district system from a public health perspective? Or if the districts weren't there, would you try and replicate having members of your team focused on uber local areas? I mean, this is a completely personal uh, perspective, so I, I'll just caveat for my response saying that. But I've never actually understood why public health was put in the, an upper tier authority if there's a two tier system. Actually, most of the things that we want to do are about reaching down to the local population to influence and inform behaviour and knowledge. We would like to you know, be very involved with the provision of um, leisure facilities, the use of green open spaces at a local level. We want to be able to influence planning. You know, if, if we get, get sort of you know, buildings and communities right and create healthy environments where people can flourish, those are the uh, core elements of, of public health. And those all sit actually at a borough and district level. If you're lucky enough to be a director of public health in a unitary, then you have more direct access. And indeed, I know many directors of public health who indeed look after leisure services and other such aligned services. Um, again, pandemic showed how closely we need to work with environmental health. Uh, again, they're in a lower tier. So if you're a director of public health in a county council, building and maintaining those relationships can be quite challenging. I think unitarisation is obviously a bit of a political agenda in the longer term yeah. anyway, but certainly from a public health perspective, it can only be a good thing to help influence some of those strategic and operational spaces that benefit people's outcomes. Really interesting, actually. And uh, you're, you're quite right that many of the levers of public health, like managing leisure centres and green spaces and planning, all sit in a two tier environment at that lower level. So that, that's very, very interesting. Um, so I want to move on to health and care reform more generally now. And I want to give you an opportunity to to talk about the current set of health and care reforms. So I suppose the first question is, what do you think the key success criteria will be for this latest set of reforms? How will we know if they've been any use or not? I have to be honest, I don't I don't think the government have gone far wrong with the articulated ambitions around integrated care systems. Um, for me, obviously, as a director of public health, reducing inequalities um, and improving health outcomes have got to be the two key measures of success. But, you know, realistically, they won't be really significantly influenced or improved in you know, the next political cycle. So, so my concern is around longevity, as it quite often is, with uh, particularly health reforms. You know, ultimately as well, if, if we're really objective, the financial sustainability of the NHS and indeed wider health and social care services is also going to be a key success factor. My concern is that is driving a lot of the behaviours at the moment still, understandably so, because, you know, we are in a very difficult financial climate at the moment. But it does obviously quite often 
mean that the narrative around you know, reducing health inequalities and left shift to more prevention and early intervention, when we've got such costly and high levels of activity in urgent and emergency care space and with a catch up for planned care, makes the delivery of that narrative very, very challenging. Yeah. You mentioned something very interesting there, which I'm interested in as well, which is essentially the question of what what can realistically be achieved within a single political cycle and what needs a bit longer. I think, um, you know, you and I are both involved with some work, the reform think tank are doing around reimagining health and care. And I, I'm pressing them to think about what can actually realistically be, be achieved and how you plan major change over a number of political cycles. And it's obviously fraught with danger and risk and everything. But I just thought it was interesting that you raised that because particularly in health reform, that's not normally acknowledged because it doesn't suit the politicians who are trying to put a manifesto of we can achieve all this within a single cycle. I mean, you know, we have talked about this previously, and I think we share a view that I think the way that health and care is managed politically needs to change. Now, we're fortunate enough to have a number of ex-health ministers um, on the panel when we talk. And, you know, they clearly have much, much more experience about the practical uh, way that that politics has to work. Yeah, we do get history lessons every now and again, which is very interesting. (laughs) Which is fascinating. And sometimes take us down a rabbit hole, but they are fascinating. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, you know, in in an ideal world, or certainly from a point, my kind of idealistic perspective would be a a, a kind of a cross-party health committee where actually there was you know there was a real recognition that this is a marathon not a sprint um and there was you know a significant and long-term financial strategy around health and care not just recovery um but you know reinvestment um that meant that people you know we were basically a healthcare system as opposed to a treatment system which is what we've morphed into over time that obviously um would not be probably popular with with politicians but my view is that we we can't keep using health and social care as a political football it it is too costly with regard to both finances and poor outcomes Uh, you know we are seeing for the first time in in decades a stagnation if not a decline in healthy life expectancy and life expectancy and in some areas we're seeing you know deprivation grow and in fact grow at a faster rate in some areas than we've ever seen before. So we are you know, significantly taking backward steps. And I'm not suggesting that that is all down to politics, but certainly when you can't get people to agree about what a medium and long-term strategy might look like or should look like based on need, we're you know, clearly going to start off in the wrong direction. I, I completely agree. I think it's crazy that um, every electoral cycle, it feels like the whole health and care system is up for, for debate. I mean, mm. surely we can ring fence a good important part of it that everyone is that everyone agrees on and that there can be a smaller element of it that maybe maybe picks certain priorities for certain certain times that can be up for debate but the whole thing just seems to be tossed up in the air every political cycle so just coming back to Essex then and thinking more tactically, we just had a very strategic conversation. But in Essex, what do you think is working well in terms of the current reforms? So certainly there's been a shift culturally. There, there is definitely a tangible move 
to a shared set of responsibilities around health inequalities, around sustainability of, of services, um, around equity of access and outcomes. So that is a really positive step forward. I think having health inequalities as an explicit responsibility of integrated care boards is, is a really important step forward. Clearly, it's helped by specific health inequalities funding. I mean, that is a drop in the ocean in comparison to what we really need if we were to make any real headway into to some of those challenges. But it, you know, it, it does for the first time write out explicitly that this is not just a public health or a council responsibility. This is something that is everyone's responsibility. The Core 20 plus 5 programme, again, has made sure that there's a focus on understanding the characteristics of your population. I, I personally disagree with the five being nationally mandated. I think we should have been allowed some local flexibility. Um, and that would have meant that those five, for example, looked different in each of my three integrated care areas. Um, but, you know, we are where we are and it still is a, a good set of tools that we've been given that, that mean everybody has kind of made that cultural shift. We've actually got three, I think, quite different populations and quite different um, sort of operational frameworks across the three integrated care systems. What we are finding is that they are particularly directed the strategy in each of those organisations coming together on a much more regular basis. Now we're sort of a bit more ingrained in the new way of working. They've started to work with the local university to look at commonalities in their strategies, which is really helpful for some of those pan-Essex organisations, not just ourselves, but there are lots of other public sector and business organisations that operate on a different footprint to the health and social care footprints. And that obviously allows us to make sure that there is clarity of purpose, which, as I said, in the pandemic, we've seen really does bring people together and, and focus both the money and the outcomes. So we're seeing good movement towards that shared accountability around health inequalities. We're taking the best bits of each of the three integrated care strategies and looking at commonalities where we can get greatest bang for our buck and our effort. And we're also doing a lot of the anchor work, which starts to look at how we can develop better workforce strategies, how we can make sure we're looking after our workforce. Because, again, those are common challenges for each of those three systems where we all want to make a difference and we don't want to be in competition with each other for yeah. those scarce resources. So there's yeah. a lot of really positive work that's already started to happen off the back of the new integrated care sort of agenda. No, it, it absolutely sounds like it. And I'm particularly interested, interested in what you were saying there about the cultural change that seems to be for me what will drive everything um because i think in previous reforms staff and leaders within the system i i don't think really bought into it because they just thought it was the latest thing and mm. that it would eventually something else would come along but it does feel a bit different this time i must say it really does so so that's one side of the coin on the flip side what do you think still needs work so i still think there is you know, maturity that needs to be developed around delegation. And I can appreciate how difficult that is. And I don't think, you know, necessarily at the moment, the, the sort of national governance guidelines are right. Integrated care boards are going to be sat held statutorily responsible pretty much for everything, even if they delegate some financial and or sort of operational responsibility down to a lower level. So, you know, that, that makes it very difficult. You have to be very trusting of your operational hubs or alliances or whatever they might be called uh, to do that. So, I, you know, that will mature over time. But I, I do think that actually that there should have been a slightly different structure that was supported to develop accountability at a much closer community based level. You know, communities very often have 
the best insight into their need and how best to meet that need. Yet we don't empower them. And I, when I say community, I don't just mean the residents themselves. I'm talking about those local primary care providers that we were talking about, the local pharmacists, those local VCFSE sector organisations. But, you know, if they're not truly responsible and accountable, then, you know, we won't get the same level of results. So I think that true delegation of power and responsibility is going to be key. But as I said, we'll we'll mature over time. And I think that fits in with your appreciation with what happens at a district level as well. And just that trying to devolve things as close to communities as possible. Um, You've mentioned health inequalities a few times now. So. The challenge of health inequalities, it gets a lot of airtime and a lot of words are spoken about it. Um, and there have been powerful works of research and policy development from Michael Marmot and others. But the situation's not really improving, or at least it doesn't feel like it is. It feels like it's getting worse. So what do you think the problem is? Gosh, if, if I knew what the problem was, then I, I you know, I'd be out of a job or I'd, or I'd certainly um, have improved things in, in my roles previously. I think, you know, it's multifactorial, isn't it? And, and that's the challenge. You know, certainly there is the challenge around the, the political cycles. Let's be really honest. Um, we never allow a structure or a way of working to fully embed. Um, we, as a, as a set of systems, I don't think I've ever come across a single system that actually truly understands what works and what doesn't in their system. I think from a point of view of inserting more academic rigor particularly into evaluation of outcomes would allow us to be much more refined in our continuation and investment in certain programs and we need need to stop shying away from disinvesting in things that don't work quite often we'll find something that doesn't work we won't stop it we'll just add something else on top of it and then we wonder why we're really stretched from a resource perspective so I think there is something about refining our commissioning and making sure we take that through a full cycle, including evaluation. Uh, you know, there are things around funding that are hyper political that, that I think people are aware of those challenges and the continuous stretches that organisations are expected to make against a backdrop of increasing cost, increasing demand, increasing complexity. You know, that, that just simply is a sum that doesn't add up. And if we are to do the left shift work and get people into a space where they're healthier for longer, they're health literate, they know what makes them healthy physically and mentally. And indeed, they have they know how to navigate a system to get the support that they need when they need it and for it to be delivered in the most appropriate setting. We need additional investment because we can't just switch off the tap. So there needs to be some double running whilst we deal with the urgent emergency care and the planned care backlog, but still start to make that operational shift to, you know, making people aware of and and making sure they're engaged in their own health, but making sure that they're healthier for longer. I think the the idea of double running is really key and scares finance directors everywhere, the thought of it. But um, sometimes it's the only way you actually stop the current system from falling over whilst also putting in place other things. But on the resources and, and on where this funding and responsibility should sit, I mean, it can't all be on government. You've mentioned already the role that businesses could play, for instance. So what should the responsibility be on individuals, communities and businesses? Because it's not just government's responsibility at all levels. No, not at all. Not at all. But I mean, we've had the luxury of care free at point of delivery um, or free at point of you know access. Uh, 
and and that's bred some really poor behaviours. Let's be really honest. We have very few people actually take as good a care of themselves as they should. Um, I think you know we we have started to take for granted the the level of support that we have, and it would be very interesting to see how behaviours would change if we were an insurance based system. And indeed, there's lots of you know beneficial behaviours that that can be generated. Uh, where people, you know, are incentivized and, and there's trials going on through the Office of Health Inequalities and Disparities, for example, to look at how that may support positive behaviour change around certain health risk factors. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes in the longer term. But, you know, that that, that luxury of free healthcare has meant that we don't worry so much because we know if, if it breaks, then someone will fix it. Yeah. And actually that kind of individual responsibility has become less apparent now i'm not suggesting that there aren't lots of people who try to do the right thing and part of our challenge is also the fact that we're not particularly good at articulating what the right thing is we also live in a betagenic environment we you know are flooded with um high fat high cholesterol high salt high sugar information and foods that are cheaper than you know, things that are good for you. There's lots of de-skilling around, you know, the preparation and cooking of those types of food. So there's a whole load of work that we need to do around policy development, literally the physical development of our infrastructure, um, and making sure that businesses and other organisations that have touch points with either their own employees or with the public start to recognise their their duty as an employer and their social corporate responsibility around doing the right thing for all of those people. Because ultimately, if their workforce is healthy and if their customers are healthy, they are actually, that's a good longer term investment for them on both counts. Indeed, it is. Um, I wonder if I could just ask you about the interplay between a council's role in investing in infrastructure and place and then achieving well-being and health outcomes for a population as well. Um, what are your thoughts on on that? Yeah, so it, it's interesting, actually. One of the reasons that I commute for two and a half hours each way to go and work in Essex is because public health was aligned with economic growth. It wasn't a service that was perceived just to be clinical and shoved under the director of adult social services, quite often propping up some of the financial investment that had been withdrawn out of wider sort of clinical in inverted commas or care services. Essex genuinely understood the impact of the wider determinants of health and had actually published um, under the guidance of the previous director of public health and a very insightful lead around our strategy and policy area, um, a corporate plan called Everyone's Essex. And that literally articulates that there are you know, four significant areas that people that we need to be investing in as, as a council that mean that the residents of Essex will reach their full potential. And, you know, it sounds like sort of, you know, motherhood and apple pie, but genuinely, not, you know, they've me, then gone not on. Me. I, I, I completely yeah. buy into it. I do. They've then gone on to, you know, write their and, and publish their own white paper before the government did. Yeah. and have a levelling up fund where they focus funding on some of the most deprived neighbourhoods. Now, that's not just economically deprived. They look at social connectivity. So some of this is about rurality. 
Essex doesn't have a significant city. It has a couple of small cities that are actually relatively newly labelled as cities. Um, it doesn't have huge businesses. It's primarily a, an SME based economy. It you know, has a wonderful tourist economy, but it, th- that has been failing over recent decades. So, you know, the understanding that actually economic growth, prosperity, good education, good employment, they're the things that will really make people's health improve is, as I said, one of the reasons that I get up in the morning and I drive as far as I drive and work with the wonderful people that I do work with, because they understand it's everyone's issue and not just mine. I think that's fascinating. I'm so pleased to ask you that question, because at Mutual Ventures, we, you know, for years, we've been going for 12 years now, for for 10 and a half of those years, we were almost exclusively focused on people services. And I thought of them in my head as quite separate. So children's services, adult social care, public health, that end of things. And we thought, right, that's great. And there was this other bit of the council that did uh, regeneration economic development. But actually, it was the, you know, for all of its faults, the advent of the levelling up fund and that agenda, the levelling up white paper, that actually made us think, hang on a second, these are clearly and very obviously two sides of the same coin. Your physical environment supports the wider determinants of health you know all sorts of well-being and uh, we're now really enjoying thinking about health and well-being and supporting vulnerable people in councils not just from the perspective of what services can be provided Mm -hmm. but in terms of what the environment's like so it's really interesting to hear you say all of that yeah i mean i'm fortunate enough to work um with the gentleman who led the leveling up units and so basically to intense purposes also the white paper and he's actually leading our devolution work within the council as well. So he starts at the same time as me. But it, again, it just kind of reinforces the fact that the council, you know, is trying to get in the best people nationally who understand this narrative and, and this kind of policy approach and are trying to make a sustainable uh, difference in Essex. It's not just kind of sticky plasters by by just funneling money into deprived areas or you know setting up short-term projects this is about fundamentally changing the economic flows the education standards and knowing that although in this political cycle our leader was really clear he won't see the rewards of that but he understands it's the right thing to do that's certainly very very brave leadership and um i i think there are a number of other areas that i'm aware of is that in that i wish they would have that ability but I think it's probably harder when the political leadership is more on balance and yes. you know, single political cycles matter hugely in terms of a person's survival in a role. I, I wanted to just come back briefly to the to the role of business. So uh, as, as a director of public health and you know, thinking about what your local businesses could do in an ideal world, what sort of things would businesses be doing? to support public health? Gosh, so, I mean, I don't know where to start, to be honest. So, so there's the whole sort of corporate responsibility around being an employer. So there is, you know, looking at the terms and conditions for their workforce, making sure they're paying things like you know, real living wage, making sure that the working environment is healthy, offering them mental and physical health support, yeah. giving them time to be able to engage in activities that, you know, make sure that they, they are 
well and that means that there will be a more productive employee for them in the longer term. So that's not about losing time from a point of view of uh you know the hours that somebody works about gaining productivity in in the medium to longer term then obviously dependent on what product or service that business is in it's considering the kind of the moral and ethical framework that they operate within uh, for example we've just had post pandemic a small um coffee shop reopen back in our uh, council offices actually and i've been talking to them and they're completely open to looking at a pricing structure that sort of on a really local level, I mean, a hyper local level, starts to apply a kind of a, a sugar tax to all yeah. of the things that, that they offer. Now, I recognise they are a business. They have to you know, make a profit. They are, you know, not not for profit. They, they are a commercial organisation. But they do recognise that as long as we can still they can still turn over the same amount of money, why would we not utilise a pricing strategy to nudge our employees into choosing healthier options? So making, you know, the fruit or the, you know, the naked bar or the low fat option that 10 pence cheaper than the higher fat option and, and putting yeah. that 10 pence levy on, on that alternative. It, it, you know, we will not change everybody's behaviour like that, but it's those little nudges gently over time that make a difference and mean that that organisation is demonstrating their sort of a corporate social responsibility. I, I think that that's entirely right. And just something struck me there as you were talking that certainly outside of London, it really is in the interests of larger companies to look after their staff because there's not an immediate replacement workforce in a lot of areas. You know, if you think of, uh, I, I know in Essex, people, a lot of people commute into London, but, you know, in other parts of the country where, you know, I'm thinking of the likes of JCB in Staffordshire, I, I imagine there's quite a big focus on making sure that that workforce is looked after. And I mean, I don't know JCB, I'm just using them as an example, because they know that there's not an immediate replacement workforce if they don't look after them. There was huge evidence and actually continuously growing evidence about the economic return on investment from a point of view of, of employee well-being. Now, I do appreciate for larger organisations, particularly if they they don't have that kind of automatic replacement uh, workforce at, at the beck and call, you know, that, that, that can be quite challenging. And as I said, Essex doesn't have huge businesses. It tends to be a lot of trades, a lot of father-son organisations, and that, and that could be really quite difficult, along with some of the challenges that come with more blue-collar workers. They tend to have higher smoking rates, you know, lower levels of physical activity other than the work that they do, for example, higher alcohol intake. So it can be quite difficult for smaller businesses, and we're trying to look at ways that we can support those kinds of initiatives online. We've got an Essex wellbeing service where you can reach in to get a range of support, both online and physical face-to-face sessions, doing whatever it might be, but from all the way from sort of mental well-being through to debt support, through to things like smoking cessation. But it's just making things accessible and allowing people the time to recognise that an investment in an employee is a longer-term economic investment in a business. Exactly. I completely agree. Um, so you mentioned devolution. You've mentioned it a couple of times. So and it's clear that Essex is working on a on a devolution deal. So from your perspective, what additional powers would you like to have in in public health? This is one that I'll tread carefully on. So, so <laughs> devolution obviously came out with the levelling up white paper. And as I said, people I work with are very close to that paper. The current suite of options for devolution are, in my view, very limited. They focus 
you know, there's, I'm sure, an economic argument behind this, but they focus on economic growth, they focus on skills, they focus on infrastructure. There is barely any narrative around why you would want to invest in those things to improve health and wellbeing outcomes in a system. And I've been working really hard with the people who are developing the bid in Essex to do two things. So one is to absolutely put a public health lens over that kind of traditional suite of options so that we are articulating not just the X number of billion pounds that the deal will bring in over however many years and you know more direct responsibility and power over decision making for things like you know highways, infrastructure, skills use, funding utilisation. But then trying to take that narrative further to say, well, actually, where would we want to focus that? Where are our most deprived areas? Where, where are areas where actually we've got the least qualifications, you know, over kind of a level three, et cetera. So thinking really strategically about what that means and how we can make sure that we're focusing that investment if we're lucky enough to get a deal to, to optimise the outcomes for our residents. Yeah. Then there's a second option about and where does public health sit in that new system? You know, operationally, as I've said, there's a really clear narrative for local, you know, really devolved responsibility and engagement at a community level. But we've also talked today about the fact that actually public health is a framework that should be applied strategically as well. So trying to make sure that actually we think about the services and the decision making that we would want at that combined authority level, which for us would include the two unitaries of Southend and on Sea and Thurrock is really key as well. So how do we set a strategic framework where health is in every policy, it's in every decision, and resources are allocated according to need? And and that's a political challenge because proportionate universalism means that if you put money where it's needed the most, the more affluent, typically higher voting areas gets less. And that is quite a difficult political narrative to square off with, you know, voters. Yes. But it's the right thing morally and from a population health perspective to do. And then, as I said, what do we want to keep at a hyperlocal level, which is really about engagement and empowerment of the communities themselves? Indeed, indeed. No, that's very interesting. Thank you for for sharing that. And we'll all watch this this space carefully to see to see what what happens in Essex. So um, I'd like to ask you a little bit now about leadership and influence. So you have a very clear leadership role in Essex um, and you obviously did so over the pandemic. However, I suppose the way to put it is you're not the direct boss, inverted commas, of a lot of the people in the system um, within the ICSs and also districts who you need to influence. So how does that work? So Basically, it's about influence. You're absolutely yeah. right. So, so there's two points I make, and they, and they sound almost like they contradict each other. But one is, you shouldn't need a director of public health. My my ultimate measure of success of my role is is albeit that I'm a statutory officer, so everyone so a council has to have one. But you fundamentally, a system should not need a director of public health because we are and we end up being the conscience of you know, decision-making, resource allocation, et cetera. And, and to a large extent, we talked about even the conscience, perhaps, of our residents. We should create a system, processes, policies that make healthy choices the easiest choices, that where that is a financially sustainable approach to take. You know, that, that may be some distance away, but you don't, you shouldn't need a director of public health to shape that narrative or shape those strategies or policies it should be the way that an organisation or a system works. You've also got the fact that I can't do this without everybody else, because we talked about how multifaceted public health is. 
you know, I, it, one single person or one single team, particularly with the pittance of a public health grant that we receive, cannot, you know, influence all of the infrastructure, the transport, the education, the social connectivity and social, you know, community safety. The, and then you go on to the, the behaviours of individuals, that the access and equality of services. Yeah. All of the things that we need to do to make a good public health system, as you say, just are, are not in my control. So I need to be able to make everyone recognise their role in public health, that it is everyone's business. And therefore, I think the one biggest skill that a director of public health needs to have isn't kind of all the technical knowledge. It's it's the ability to influence without that authority. Now, yeah. whether I'm, I'm good at that or not, time will tell, I guess. But it's I, I absolutely recognise that I could be, you know, the best sort of medical statistician I could be the most amazing epidemiologist I could know every infectious disease inside out I could know you know everything technically that I need to know but if I can't engage both our residents and our wider partners in understanding their role in that the benefit in that and actively engaging to improve outcomes for everybody I'm on a hiding to nothing so that that's my biggest job is giving everybody else my job I mean, that, that, what you described there, I think works well, could potentially work in normal times, but let's take a pandemic as an example. You know, I, I think an area needs, needs that expert leader to be able to communicate with them as you did during the last couple of years. Um, and that's not something that you can really do at a hyper local level. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe you're making the argument for that as well, but it just feels to me that some areas had really good directors of public health who were able to explain things to people. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic, you know, we are obviously trained to deal with pandemics. Health protection is one of the three pillars of public health. Um, and for those that go through the formal training programme, you spend you know, a significant chunk of that working um, with the, the relevant uh, health protection agency at the time. So, you know, it's something we're trained to do. But the reality, particularly of a novel virus, was, you know, that, that we are in unprecedented times. And you're right, you know, we that the specialism that public health requires and, and the things that I just articulated that aren't a day to day work really came to the fore. And you know, there was a marked difference. I'll be really honest. You could see the difference between those DPHs that were comfortable in that space because it was hyper-specialist. And it was also, let's be honest, it was very clinical as well, which must have been very challenging for those that perhaps weren't from a clinical background. But it, you know, more importantly, we had experts that could support us. So a lot of that was about communicating and instilling confidence in our community to ensure that behaviours were safe, that they were considerate, um, and that obviously we were protecting ourselves and, and others that were you know, more vulnerable. It was an extraordinary time. It does show you the power of a community that yeah. is, you know, sort of really clearly informed and all supportive of a single particular outcome. And clearly we had people who, you know, would, would write me appalling letters, call me things on, uh, you know, uh, social media. Um, and and my, my address was on a police watch list, for example, because, you know, anti-vaxxers would, would find out where you lived. But they were far and few. And, you know... Whatever I take from that, because it was a really challenging time for every DPH, no matter how experienced or inexperienced you were, it was really challenging. Um, but it does. It did completely restore my faith in the fact that people want to do the right thing. They want to look after themselves. They want to look after each other. But what we've done is not provide the right environment and the right information for them to be able to do that. Yeah. 
Very interesting. Thank you for that. So as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or even in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? Well, that's very nice of you to suggest that I've made an impact. Um, I feel like, you know, sometimes it's, it's like pushing water uphill. But, you know, as I said, public health genuinely is everybody's business. No matter where you're working, you can actually make a difference. There are lots of organisations and, and voluntary sort of opportunities that are directly linked with community support, community information and empowerment. You know, and, and obviously if, if a community is more health literate, if it understands the services it's got locally, if you can help signpost people who want to make a difference or who need support, whether they recognise that or not, taking them on that journey and helping them you know, really maximise the opportunities that are available to them is an extraordinary thing to be able to do. And that can be done informally. There's then obviously the formal training routes that we've talked about that, um, you know, lots of different roles within public health from environmental health, as we've talked about yeah. uh, in a lower tier local authority, all the way through to formal consultant roles. So lots and lots of opportunities, again, both in local authorities, the NHS, and also some of the specialist organisations like UK Health Security Agency and Office for Health Inequalities and Disparities. Um, people, you know, are, are absolutely always welcome to, to reach out to get more information. But, you know, it is a health and all policies approach. I'd struggle to think of any organisation that doesn't have a role or any person in the community that doesn't have a role in improving their own and others' outcomes. If they want to be supported to do that, then, you know, there's lots of information online or that can be provided by local organisations to help them do that. Fantastic. I think the, the profile of of public health and the professionals who work in it has certainly been been raised over the past couple of years. And I and I know that people listening to this will have got a lot more information and a lot more understanding. So, Lucy, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope you did too. There's a couple of bits that I want to highlight in particular. One is how closely aligned public health is with levelling up and with economic growth. I think historically sometimes these different elements of what a council does, the services that are more focused on people like adult social care, public health, children's services, are kept on one side of the council and other stuff that's to do with place, like infrastructure, economic growth, has been separate. But actually, I think there's an increasing realisation now that these two sides of the same coin of what a council does are so inextricably linked and that public health and the health of a local workforce is clearly critical to supporting local economic growth and helping an area become thriving. And the role of businesses and communities in public health is therefore critical. Um, like Lucy and I discussed, it's not just about what government does. What are local businesses doing to support their local workforce? What are communities doing to support themselves? And how are councils enabling that support to take place? These are all critical things. And I think there was a lot of insight within this discussion. The second point I'd like to highlight is around devolution, and this is double devolution, really. So Lucy had some very interesting thoughts on the flexibility she would like as a director of public health in terms of implementing the government's agenda for public health, and also her thoughts on how the delivery of public health should be as local as possible, and that key thought about the role that local areas and district councils could and should play. 
And finally, I was really interested in the part of the discussion where Lucy talks about influencing without authority, I think was how she put it. We all have to do it, no matter what our roles are. We all need to be able to influence people. And that's often a much more powerful way of getting things done than using direct authority. So I found that bit really interesting, and I'm sure you all did too. So that's everything for this episode, and thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episodes in the future. 